Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Many advances in medicine are made only after people have volunteered to be human subjects, testing a new drug or procedure in what are known as clinical trials. Each of these controlled scientific experiments is overseen by a principal investigator, and today I'm speaking with someone who has vast experience with a variety of clinical trials, including some that are ongoing. Dr. Stephen Thomas is a professor of microbiology and immunology and infectious disease, and he also leads Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. Welcome back to The Informed Patient, Dr. Thomas. Thank you, Amber. It's good to be back. I know that clinical trials are very regulated. Can you walk us through, in general, how and why they're done? You're right. They are very regulated, and there's a number of different steps that a trial has to go through before it can actually be implemented, and you can start advertising and recruiting and engaging potential volunteers. So the first thing that has to happen is that the plan has to be assessed for its scientific rigor, and so there's usually a scientific review committee that looks and makes sure that the questions you're asking make sense and can actually be answered with the trial that you're proposing. And then once the scientific review is acquired and you pass that, then you typically go to an IRB review, so an institutional review board. Sometimes they're called ERCs, ethical review committees. These are groups of objective, disinterested parties, so they're not involved with the conduct of the science. And they look at your plan primarily for safety. And they want to make sure that in addition to adhering to sound ethical principles of doing human research, which there's lots and lots of literature and there's federal guidelines and state guidelines and institutional guidelines, they want to make sure that there's a plan in place to ensure the safety of the volunteers. So that's kind of locally. And if you're doing something with an investigational drug or medical device or vaccine, then the FDA often gets involved and they have to also have a review of what your plan is and what the product is that you're testing. And they have to sign off again, primarily on safety. So there's lots of checks and balances before a study can even begin. So people can't participate in something until it has cleared that first hurdle about being found to be safe. These early phase trials, so these phase one trials, those are typically done in small numbers of people, and their primary focus is on safety. So there's always going to be a first, and they're called first-in-man studies or first-in-human studies. But to even get to that kind of first-in-human study, you have to go through all the reviews that I just mentioned. And usually... The way it occurs is there's what they call a preclinical development program, which involves doing things in the laboratory, doing things sometimes in animal models, ensuring that the manufacturing process, if it's a vaccine or drug or device, make sure that that process has been audited and is high quality. And again, the FDA looks at all of that prior to allowing anyone to participate, even in those phase one safety trials. How many more phases are there after phase one? Well, it used to be there was phase one, two, three, and four. So phase one is, again, a small number of people. 
It could be anywhere from 10 up to 100 people, although that would be a bigger phase one. And the primary focus is safety. And then phase two trials, those are bigger studies and those can be hundreds of people. And the focus is still safety, but this is also where you're looking to get some early indication that the vaccine or the drug, for example, is doing what it's supposed to be doing. So let's say for a vaccine, they would start measuring immune responses or they would do large scale measurements of immune responses in these phase two trials. And then phase three trials are typically what we call clinical endpoint studies or efficacy studies. And this is where even though safety is still a priority, you do trials in thousands and thousands of people. So just for context, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna COVID vaccine trials, those phase three trials were 45,000 people each. And this is where you see if the the vaccine or the drug is doing what it's supposed to do. And in most cases, it's having some kind of positive clinical benefit for the person who receives it. There are some variations on those themes. So there's phase 1B trials and phase 1-2 trials and phase 2B trials, but the 1, 2, and 3 are the primary phases. And then phase 4 trials, those are the types of trials that a manufacturer might do after they actually get a license and they get a, a marketing authorization to sell their vaccine or their drug or their device in a widespread way. And those are trials that are done to answer some additional questions, or they might be trials that are done to satisfy a post-licensure or post-marketing requirement from the FDA. So the FDA could say, you've shown us that the product is safe. You've shown us that the product does what it's supposed to do. But we have these additional questions, and it is a requirement for you to maintain this license that you do studies that will answer these additional questions. And those are typically phase four studies. I understand some trials focus on prevention, others on screening, others on treatment. What types of trials does the Institute for Global Health conduct? We do all of those types of trials. So we have worked with companies that are trying to make different diagnostic tests. And so those trials might involve a volunteer coming in and giving a small blood sample, for example. We do treatment trials. So we test different drugs to help control HIV infection. We did a number of treatment trials around COVID. So testing antibodies and testing immune system modulators, things like that. And then we do trials known as experimental human infection trials or challenge trials. This is where you take healthy people and you expose them to weakened viruses or bacteria when you have a disease that's very hard to study, or maybe the disease occurs primarily in vulnerable populations and you want to do some explorations prior to going into those vulnerable populations, you can do these experimental infection trials. And then we do lots of vaccine trials. That's probably the thing we do most frequently. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient podcast with your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. Before we resume our conversation, I want to let listeners know the website, upstateglobalhealth.org, contains a list of clinical trials written in plain English. So if you're interested in learning more about any of the trials we discuss, UpstateGlobalHealth.org is a good place to start. Also, the phone number to call if you're interested in volunteering is 315-464-9869, or you can send an email to trials at upstate.edu. 
I'll be speaking with one of your colleagues about clinical trials involving children later on in the program, but I'd like to ask you about adults who volunteer for clinical trials. Where and how do you find people to volunteer? It's changed over my career. I've been doing this about 20 years or so, and it's changed probably in a way that you can imagine. Advertising and recruitment through social media has become a lot more popular. We still do radio and TV once in a while, and we will have billboards. You might see billboards up around the city. We send emails, we send flyers. Our recruitment team will go to social events, you know, a baseball game or a football game, or they'll go to some other kind of social outing where folks might want to hear about what we're doing. And then we're on Facebook and Instagram and, and LinkedIn and these other places. Sometimes we're recruiting or advertising a specific study and sometimes it's a little bit more generic but social media is the primary way to get in front of a lot of people with relatively i won't say little effort because it's a lot of work for the recruitment team but it's a different kind of effort than pounding the pavement which is what has had to be done in the past do scientists ever volunteer for their own research or can their colleagues or students volunteer we have pretty strict rules about that, again, mostly from an ethical standpoint. You hear all these stories from the past of, of scientists inoculating themselves with things or trying treatments on family members, and that's really uh, kind of frowned upon now. You really want to make sure that in addition to being extremely safe, you want to make sure that the data you collect is high quality and you don't want family members or people who are actually part of the research team to be part of the studies. And there's also concern about the potential for coercion, right? You don't have bosses asking their uh, uh, the people who they work with or who work for them to participate because they may feel like they really don't have a chance. All that being said, I will tell you, I did volunteer. When I was in training at Walter Reed, I participated in a, uh, a malaria vaccine trial, actually, that was... Uh, well outside my area. I, I didn't do any work in malaria, really. So it was, it was an interesting experience. One, I thought that if I was going to do this for a living, I should see what it's all about first. Well, what's in it for the people who volunteer beyond altruism? Well, we really hope that that's the primary reason that people explore and then ultimately volunteer. You know, in a lot of these studies, there really is no direct benefit to the person. And it is the advancement of science. It is the answering of questions. It is the potential indirect benefit that they, but more than likely the greater society will get from their participation. One example, I mean, recent example, of course, would be the COVID vaccine trial. We had thousands of people wanting to participate. In the end, we had about 470 people or so who participated and, you know, this was a placebo-controlled trial, so it's possible that, you know, some people got placebo, some people got vaccine, no one knew who got what. And so you were not guaranteed to be first in line to get vaccinated. It's possible you might have gotten placebo. So altruism and the advancement of science is really what we want the driving force to be behind our volunteers. I'd like to hear about some of the trials you have underway. I've seen billboards recruiting people for a trial about a vaccine for dengue fever. What can you tell us about that and how the trial works? Dengue, it's a disease where people get fever, they get eye pain and headache, and they can get bone pain and muscle pain. They can have fatigue. It's a disease that is caused by four different viruses. 
and those viruses are transmitted by mosquitoes. And it's primarily spread in tropical and subtropical parts of the world. There's about, they estimate around 400 million people a year who get infected globally. So it's a big problem and anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people die every year because of it, and unfortunately, primarily children. But we have had dengue outbreaks in the United States. We have it in the Texas-Mexico border. We've had it in Miami and parts of Florida. Hawaii has had outbreaks. Key West had a big outbreak. And we have lots of travelers who come back from Southeast Asia, the Caribbean, and territories like Puerto Rico. And our military is at great risk of dengue when they deploy servicemen and women to these different areas. So that's dengue, and that's why we we work on it. And we do lots of different work. We work on vaccines. We work on drugs that we hope will prevent dengue. We work on uh, drugs that are intended to um, to treat people who develop severe disease. And, and then we do these experimental infections with weakened dengue viruses to... Um, to, to improve the information that, that we get out of these trials. We're doing a trial right now. We're in the middle of a trial that uh, is looking at an experimental drug that would prevent and or treat dengue. And, you know, unfortunately, this problem has been around for a very, very long time. And we've been working for a long time on vaccines and drugs, but we just really don't have that many tools. And so these trials are really, they're extremely important, especially as the mosquito finds uh, um, permanent home in places like the United States or even in parts of Europe, and and its uh, habitat is expanding as the climate manipulates and changes over time. How do you convince people to willingly be injected with the dengue virus? Is that some people will be injected with the virus? Is that right? It's the same process that we go through for any of these studies, and it's called the informed consent process. It's probably the most important element of human clinical trials that that we do. And so this is the process where um, people, first of all, we will provide them information in writing that they can, you know, that they can read and, and, you know, look through. And it has information about the problem we're working on and what we think our potential solution is and how we want to study that solution and what their role would be and what the risks are and what the potential benefits are and, and you know, very specific details about, uh, you know, how many visits are you going to have? What's going to happen at those visits to the clinic? Are we going to um, text you? Are we going to give you phone calls? Are we going to, I mean, everything everything from the science to the logistics to financial reimbursement for uh, expenses that they incur. Uh, it's all part of the informed consent process and, and it's a process. So it doesn't happen once and then stop. It's a continual process that goes on throughout the entire, the entirety of, uh, of the study. Sometimes we will, you know, to ensure that people um, kind of understand the the risks and the benefits and the purpose of the studies. We sometimes will have um, tests that people have to take, and they have to score a certain grade to be able to be um, to be in the study. And uh, you know, and sometimes people will, um, you know, clearly kind of not understand what we're doing, or their schedule versus our schedule really won't work out. So we. We recruit lots and lots of people and we screen lots of people for these studies in hopes to get, um, you know, you would is usually small, you know, small numbers. 
What happens if someone in the dengue trial develops a bad case of dengue? Do the researchers take care of that research subject as a patient then? Even when you're not doing these experimental infection studies, there is always the potential that, you know, somebody, one in a million people have allergic reactions to vaccines, right? So, or, um, you know, somebody might get a sore arm or they might get a rash, whatever the issue is, these trials are designed to identify the issue, uh, to provide them a direct link to a healthcare team, which, you know, we're, our investigators are doctors and nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And we have a large nursing staff that are part of the part of the study. And we have research pharmacists. So when a problem or a potential problem is identified, we are on top of it um, quickly. And, you know, this is one of the good things about being an academic medical university. We have the medical infrastructure to take care of people uh, if they need it. And the dengue studies, the earlier dengue infection studies we did, there are some studies where we automatically will put people into the hospital, not necessarily for safety, but to do some of the research that we need to do. So for example, if we have to, you know, take vital signs multiple times in a day, 24 hour period, or we have to get multiple blood draws, or, you know, if someone has a persistent fever or something like that, then we will proactively admit them to the hospital for, you know, usually it turns out to be about a day or two, maybe maybe three. So, yep, safety, again, is the number one priority. That's what we're committed to. And so we have all the infrastructure in place to uh, ensure volunteer safety. That's good to know. What other trials do you have the most pressing need for volunteers at this point? We're finishing up our our um, COVID vaccine trials now. So that's, that's uh, you know, two plus years that we've been involved. So those are closing down. We're involved in influenza vaccine trials made with uh, messenger RNA uh, technology, similar to COVID. Uh, we have a big, a big registry that we're doing with the National Institutes of Health and the University of Maryland. So this does not involve any products per se. This is people registering and us following them over. Um, we see them a couple times a year and we draw blood and, and we track influenza um, or other influenza-like illnesses, and we track their vaccines because we're looking at, we're trying to figure out what types of immune responses are maximally protective against against flu. So that's a big, that's a big, huge multi-university project that uh, that we're involved in. We're doing a yellow fever vaccine study. That's also, it's another virus transmitted by a uh, mosquito um but we're not we're not enrolling right now we've completed our our enrollment i would say that the most pressing trial we have right now is the uh is the one we've been talking about which is the dengue drug trial that's one that we're right in the middle of and we're really hoping uh, uh we need you know we need about nine more people uh to finish the study so we're <laughs> we're we're advertising a lot and and we're 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 looking for people who are interested to hear more so tell me those people what age range and is there anything that would disqualify someone if they're interested in participating what what type of person oh, are yeah. you looking for we're looking for young healthy people so they have to be adults so they have to be over 18 and they have to be healthy so meaning no acute medical problems. Uh, if they do have medical problems, they're mild in nature and they're adequately 
uh, they're adequately managed. One of the benefits that people do receive when they when they screen for our trials is, you know, they basically get they get a full hist medical history, they get a full physical exam. In many cases, we do blood work, looking at kind of routine sorts of things like how their bone marrow is working, their kidneys, their liver. In in some instances, we will uh, look at we'll do EKGs, so we'll look at the their heart rhythms and the electrical activity of their heart. In some cases, we even do ultrasounds of the uh, of the heart. So, um, basically, young, young, healthy, healthy folks. But but sometimes we have trials that are specific for older folks. Again, you remember the 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 Pfizer BioNTech vaccine trial. We enrolled people up to 85, 85 years of age. So it all it all depends on the, on the trial. But for dengue, it's it's young, healthy folks. So up to age 65 for dengue? I think that one's up to 50. Up to 50. Let me ask you, do volunteers ever get paid? They do. We we typically, for most trials, uh, we reimburse people for expenses that they may incur um, for participation. So, you know, we understand that people... They have to have transportation. They might have to pay for parking. If we're not paying for it directly, um, they may miss work. And in some cases, people might miss some wages, right? If they have to, to come to the to the clinic for, as part of their research activities. Sometimes we have to have people stay in a hotel. And so obviously we will we'll pay that, uh, we'll pay that bill. Um, and, you know, I, in some of the studies, if people have to come to lots of visits and they're getting lots of blood collections or or they're doing other activities, the pay can be significant. But, you know, I'll just say that I highly recommend that people not focus on that if they're considering volunteering. They really should focus on whether or not this is something that they uh, that they want to do for altruistic reasons or to advance science because we make we make sure that the reimbursement is it's reasonable and it is not going to coerce or convince somebody to do something and participate in a in a trial that they otherwise uh, would not uh, would not want to do the people who participate have to have their own health insurance or does that matter at all in many cases especially for like the dengue trials, we do look at people's medical records just again as part of that health screening to make sure we will learn from them what they're, you know, whether they have a primary care physician or not and, um, you know, where they get their care and those sorts of things. We do not get into people's socioeconomic status, if you will, right? We're interested in whether people are healthy or not and whether or not they can meet the requirements of the study. And so we want to make sure that, you know, they, that it can be, they can participate safely and that they are able to complete the study, uh, that we can remain in contact with them, that we can make sure they'll make it to the appointments. Th those are the types of, of things that we're, that we're interested in. And there's very clear language in these consent forms about how illnesses or injuries, if there are any, will be will be managed, and it's our and it's our responsibility to uh, to make sure that anything that happens as a result of participation that we make sure that people are properly properly taken care of. So, again, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and the pre-trial processes and checks and balances and reviews are 
robust and rigorous enough that we we really don't go to these human trials without um, a great sense of confidence that uh, we're embarking on a safe activity. So at the end of the trial, do the researchers let the research subjects know the outcome and what happens? Or do you send them copies of the paper you write? Do they find out what, what a difference they made? It depends on the trial and it depends upon, um, you know, what we're actually testing. So for the, for the COVID vaccine, you remember this trial was, this trial was ongoing when the FDA issued its first emergency use authorization. And there was discussion amongst the FDA and the advisory boards to the FDA about, well, what do we do with, <laughs> you know, these 44,000, well, and if you count Moderna, the 90,000 people who volunteered for trials, half of them got placebo, half of them did not. And now every adult in the U.S. is eligible to get the vaccine. We can't put these people at the back of the line, <laughs> right, because they decided to serve their community and volunteer. So we had to go through an unblinding uh, process and offer the opportunity to people if, hey, if you want to know what you received, and then if you receive placebo, if you want to receive vaccine, then then we will make that make that happen for you. So in that case, yes, but most of the time, uh, there are, are sort of very uh, intensive and very kind of technical uh, tests that are being run on these blood samples that um, that's not, you know, that's not information that volunteers want, you know, for the most part, they don't want that, that information. And oftentimes, obviously, it's information that needs to be checks and balances on that information before companies can make it, uh, can make it public, right? So, so usually the volunteers are not asking for that very detailed information. They just... They just say they hope they, uh, you know, they hope they made a difference and they were glad to participate and, and they, they wish us luck. <laughs> I wonder, because it seems like human volunteers are essential to these trials. I wonder how development of the COVID vaccine would have been affected if you didn't have people who were willing to volunteer. Well, if you remember, uh, people initially were very curious and in some cases dubious about this messenger RNA technology, right? And they were surprised to hear that this is something that had been worked on for 30 years. Uh, that technology uh, was um, first explored a long, long time ago. And, and that technology had been used to make candidate vaccines against a number of diseases, influenza, Zika, and HIV are a few of the examples. And those trials, and they did trials, they did early phase one and phase two trials. And so thousands of people had received a messenger RNA-based vaccine candidate, but there was never, um, they're just, the situation was just not there to uh, motivate the advancement of those uh, vaccines into much larger studies. And so... Unfortunately, COVID presented that, you know, presented that that opportunity and that, okay, well, we have a pandemic, we have thousands, millions of infections, and we have people getting sick. And all that being said, if people did not volunteer to be part of the trials, 
um, and to either receive placebo or receive an experimental vaccine and then to allow us to watch them over time in their environment, the vaccine would have never, certainly not within a year, but but potentially never, um, would have demonstrated that it was safe and that it was effective. There are very few ways other than doing human trials to get something approved, right? And and it's, you know, it's more than just getting an approval, right? It's developing a, a fund of knowledge and, and experience and past performance of something um, so that everyone can feel comfortable about rolling their sleeve up and getting vaccinated. Well, Dr. Thomas, I thank you for making time to talk about clinical trials. Well, thanks very much for having me. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology and infectious disease at Upstate. And he's also the director of the Institute for Global Health and Translational Science, which has the website upstateglobalhealth.org. The phone number is 315-464-9869. And the email is trials, T-R-I-A-L-S, at upstate.edu. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.